Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon, Kobus. This is my favorite show of the year. Every year, at the last two weeks in December, we dedicate ourselves to looking back in the year that we just experienced, 2017, and then also looking ahead to what we think is coming up in China-Africa relations in 2018. So we have a format that we've been doing for the past eight years, and it seems to work. So we're going to continue with it. Kobus、uh, and I are each bringing three stories that we think were the top stories of 2017. We have not. Actually, shared notes, so we don't know what the others are, each other's stories are, and then we're going to take one story for what we think is going to be important in the look ahead to 2018. So, before we get started, Kobus, why don't we, why don't you just give us a little bit of an overview of what you thought,、uh, kind of what were some of the big trends? Not, don't give away your stories, but give us a, a look back at 2017. One of the big trends that I saw was that the Belt and Road、uh, Initiative. You know, it, it's been around for a while, but it's really around now. It's really. Prevalent and strong. It's one of the key themes. It's be, it was、um, institutionalized in and in, inscribed into the Communist China, the Chinese Communist Party、uh, Constitution、um, at the at the Congress、um, in October,、um, and it is now such a central part of China-Africa relations.、Um, it's it's difficult to actually remember a pre-Belt and Road era.、Um, so that that's actually my key trend for the for the year. And it's interesting you mentioned Belt and Road in, in part because it will touch on so many of the stories that seem unrelated, but Belt and Road is the thread that connects them. And so, let's keep that in mind actually as we go through our six stories of 2017. Why don't you go ahead and start with the third most important story, number three for 2017. The one that I chose, I think we tend to think of it as, you know, the big announcements about this started in 2016, actually. But for me, the implementation, the slow implementation of the Chinese ban on ivory was my number three story. With、um, the workshops being shut down、um, in China、um, around March, and the market supposedly closing around now, like we're not sure exactly when it's kicking in, but it's supposed to be at the end of this year.、Um, So it was a very interesting development to see.、Um, to it, in a in a way, it almost feels like the ivory question has kind of disappeared off the table. But at the same time, as we, you know, kind of showed through the show,、um, th- you know, with with some of the some of the interviews. The story isn't over. The crisis isn't over,、um, and you know we, we've seen reports that the ivory market, the Chinese ivory market, is moving offshore.、Um, That、uh, these kind of mafias that are running ivory are also moving into other kind of illicit wildlife trade, so it's kind of the story is in a way only starting, but at the same time it is kind of this massive step, this kind of Rubicon that's been that's been you know you know crossed by the Chinese government to actually shut down the domestic market. Well, yeah, I'll agree with you.、Uh, it was actually on my. Con- Considered list. I did not actually include that in my top three, only because that was such a big story last year. But you are right to keep it on your list, in part because it is so important. There's, in my view, good news and bad news on this. 
The good news is, as you've talked about, we have actually crossed a Rubicon here in that it is now permissible to talk about banning ivory. And I can tell you, being on the streets here in Shanghai and actually throughout my travels in China, I have seen a lot more public discussion of ivory and the ban against it. It's on buses. It's on billboards. And you can tell that it is officially sanctioned by the government as something to talk about now and to promote. So youth groups are talking about it. Environmental groups are now publicly talking about it. And and that's significant because here in China, NGOs and their activities and what campaigns they can focus on are all tightly regulated by the government. So it's clearly been an approved subject by the government. I think, though, that leads us to the bad news. And the bad news is is that we can get lazy now because of all the media hype, because of all these publicity campaigns. A lot of people can think, well, it's not that big of a deal anymore. And we just got a sobering reality check uh, back in in November when a multi-ton stash of ivory coming over the border from Vietnam was hauled in by Chinese customs. Now, some people said, wow, look, Chinese customs is now cracking down more effectively. That actually is a good thing, and we need to recognize that. Chinese Customs also did a very, very big haul of pangolin uh, wildlife, uh, illicit wildlife trafficking of pangolins as well. So there does seem to be, at least on the public relations side, a newfound enthusiasm on the part of Chinese Customs to crack down. The downside is there still seems to be a significant demand for these types of products, uh, for ivory and for pangolin and for a lot of these wildlife products coming from Africa. And so if we are not vigilant in keeping the attention and the awareness up, I suspect or I worry that we can become complacent and the sales will still go on, the killing will still go on, the buying will still go on. And in a weird way, our you know our bigger um, Belt and Road theme is strangely also locks into this. Like I'm reading a, a, a great book um, by the sinologist Harry Gelber, which looks at um, it's called. Um, the Dragon and the Foreign Devils, which, you know, please everyone writing on China, leave out the dragon out of your titles in the future. Um, but, you know, not, not to diss his title, but it's this great book telling the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big sweeping history of China as told through its relationship with the outside world. It's, you know, the different kind of Chinese encounters with the outside world across centuries. And, you know, so I'm at, at the, the, the Ming Dynasty at the moment, and already during the Ming Dynasty there was rhino horn and ivory flowing from Africa into China. So, you know, and and along the same routes as the Chinese government is reawakening now through the Belt and Road Initiative. So it is this, you know, it's centuries old, this trade. Um, Breaking it is going to be hard, harder than I think people expect. It will take time. Okay, my number three top story of 2017. I'm actually going to do, a, I'm cheating here a little bit. I apologize. I'm going to do a little bit of an umbrella uh, to include two stories. And it's called the launch of railways. So this was a very, very important year for two very anticipated, highly anticipated railways that launched. One is the standard gauge railway between Nairobi and Mombasa in Kenya. And the other is the Addis Ababa Djibouti railway. And and I think these were hugely important, in part because it was China delivering on a promise that was years in the making. These are, are, you just can't overstate the importance of building this kind of infrastructure. Let's put aside the questions of the cost, which both railways in from Ethiopia to Djibouti and the standard gauge railway in Kenya uh, appear to have run much higher than they were budgeted to. A lot of people uh, say that the Chinese ripped off these countries, that they could have gotten a better deal somewhere else. That may be the case, 
But the fact that the Chinese provided the, the full package of services, the financing and the implementation plus the training, uh, I think is significant. I, I think that would have been much more difficult to do had Ethiopia and Kenya gone out onto the open market, got financing from the World Bank, then got the trains from the Japanese, and then got training from the Americans. That would have been a very difficult process. So the fact that this was all bundled up together might have had a very important role in making this happen. Incidentally, back to your point, Cobus, about Belt and Road, both of these trains do have their connections to Belt and Road. Both of these trains are also on the Belt and Road lines, and I think that underlies the enthusiasm that the Chinese have for building this type of infrastructure in that part of Africa. So uh, very quickly, just to remind everybody, the launch of the Mombasa-Nairobi Standard Gauge Railway was at the end of May. And then the Addis Ababa-Djibouti Railway, which is still uh, undergoing testing and whatnot, that came out, uh, let me think, that was about mid-year that that came around. And then, then, then in October, they did a test run, and they're still kind of testing a lot of these different parts of, the, of that railway. That's a little bit more of a complicated railway. But that is so important for Ethiopia in part because this is the first international connection that's been made for Ethiopia to get its rail, uh, direct rail line to the sea. I 100% agree, and I agree to the extent that it'll, you know, you'll probably see a similar kind of theme of mine coming up later in the list. Um, but, you know, so, so you know, I'll, I'll discuss it in more detail when we get to it. But, yeah, like 100% agree. It, like, it's, it's a, a, a massive, massive leap forward, and it's going to really change the face of Africa, I think. And it's one of these stories that I think people in the West wouldn't value as much. But infrastructure and the launch of high-profile, uh, big infrastructure projects in Africa is incredibly important and undervalued in many parts of the rest of the world. So uh, so that's it. So let's move on down our list. Number two in your list, the second most important story of 2017, Cobus, what is on your list? The story on its face was a, a minor controversy, but I think it, uh, I chose it because it, it points to much larger issues in the China-Africa relationship, and that was the racist exhibit, at, photo exhibit at the Chinese Museum. Um, it was a bunch of paired pictures with, with Africans with different facial expressions um, coupled with a picture of an animal with a similar facial expression, supposedly. In most cases, you couldn't see any, any resemblance at all. Um, and it was this kind of dumb exhibition, like by a, a non... It wasn't a, a full-on professional artist. He was a, you know, he, um, he had a, a different job and it, it was, you know, he's a kind of a hobbyist photographer and then he got this exhibit. And then it blew up. And it just became the social media hysteria kind of, you know, and, um, you know, and, and rightly so, because of this, this incredibly loaded, like, uh, juxtaposition of Africans and animals, you know, and all of the, the, the rela relations drawn between them, and incredibly flat-footed reaction by the Chinese, finally, you know, the, uh, after a few days of, of, you know, the internet going nuts, um, you know, it was finally removed. The reason I chose it is because... Race, I think, is going to be a much bigger issue in the China-Africa relationship as we go forward. Um, you know, as the China-Africa relationship moves beyond simply extraction, as it moves into Chinese companies manufacturing stuff in Africa and selling stuff to African people and the, you know, Africans, African economies becoming maturing and becoming more complex and wanting to engage with Africa in different, with China in different kind of ways, race is this 
time bomb, I think. The, you know, China is so behind in terms of thinking of itself as a multicultural place. It has so little kind of intellectual tools at the moment to think of itself as a racist country. Um, at the same time, there's so much sensitivities on both sides in relation to these issues, and I think China is, has no idea how badly this kind of thing can go wrong in Africa. Um, you know, so I think, I think this is, yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's a small incident, but a big, a potentially big problem. I'm surprised problem. that you, you picked this one, and I don't, I personally don't think that it rises to the level of, uh, of something anywhere near as significant as you do. <laughs> uh, so this is actually, our dear listeners, one of the first times you may hear on our show where Cobus and I vociferously disagree with one another. It doesn't happen very often, and this is one of those cases. To me, this was a podunk exhibit in a, you know, in a remote, not, it wasn't quite remote, but it was definitely a provincial town. Um, I, it, it escapes me exactly where it was. I think it was in Wuhan. I want to say mm, it was in Wuhan, yes. which is a second-tier city. I mean, this was not at the uh, any of the major museums in Beijing or Shanghai, which was put on by a major inst- government institution. It was not put on by a noted artist. Uh, this was a joker of a photographer who had a lot of experience in Africa. But when he was, what was significant to me about this story was how the local expatriate African community, the diaspora here, rose up in anger and not only got the, the government-funded museum to, to withdraw and close down the exhibit after over, I think it was like 100,000 people had already seen it, uh, but then extracted an apology from the photographer and the group of photographers. It actually wasn't one. It was a, it was a collective of photographers. And that was remarkable. And what was so interesting is that we could watch, there was a video made of local activists, African activists, working with the different, uh, working with with the the group of photographers. And what was so interesting was how it was such a struggle because they just didn't understand what the problem was. And I think that goes to your point about there still is a sense of insensitivity here uh, about the issues of race. And in in defense of China here, and gosh, I'm going to be called a panda hugger again. I'm sorry. But when you live in China, you're surrounded by mostly Han Chinese. It's a 93, 94 percent Han Chinese community, particularly out here in eastern China, where it's almost 100 percent. The minority populations are generally in the West and in the South. So there, there's not a multicultural society. So you talk about how there is this lack of awareness. And that's kind of understandable a little bit. And because this isn't a multicultural society, it is not an immigrant society, where are people going to get that experience of dealing with people of other races so that they can build up the sensitivities and build up that that language and that vocabulary to talk about race? It's not going to happen in Shanghai and Beijing under the current circumstances. So I don't actually know how that happens other than, A, running into these kinds of problems, which may ultimately be healthy because it sparks a conversation, and B... The more Chinese people who travel overseas, who live overseas and live in the United States and Africa and multicultural communities and societies, that will help in the long run. But 
that's a very, very long-term ambition. So Yeah, I think the, the difference, I think, you know, in terms of our perspectives is, is interesting because I think it's also the difference between the perspectives of living in China and living in Africa. Um, because, you know, here, if one is, you know, one is so immersed in these issues, um, South Africa is obviously going to has its own, you know, kind of particular supercharged version of racial issues. And, um, you know, and, and South Africa is going through a process where there, there's a lot of public discussion of these of these issues, so you know that probably informs my view, but I think also that the I agree with you the incident, the, the exhibit itself and the artists involved and so on they were all minor they were all you know kind of like small time hobbyists. Um, the fact that it managed to to blow up to you know on on, on the level that it did completely belied how a minor exhibit it was. Um, and it showed the process, it showed how African social media is, you know, is is taking off and also how it is ready to jump on these issues in a, in a, in a, in a much more, uh, you know, aggressive and, you know, an activist kind of way. Um, but isn't that the point? No, no, but let, let's stop right there. Ready to jump on it. And it feels a little bit like any time there is the racist TV commercial, one of these photo exhibits, there is this, aha, gotcha. I yes. knew it. I knew it. You guys were just these racist pigs who were coming here to kind of colonize us the same way that the whites came here to do it. Ba, ba, yes. ba, 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 ba. And, and I think that can be deceiving in many respects because it doesn't show – how many intercultural marriages are happening, how many intercultural children are being born, how much assimilation is happening both on the African side here in China but also among Chinese in, in, you know, in Africa. And so those stories don't get the attention and are not jumped on anywhere with the amount of enthusiasm that these stories are. So exactly. I think... Exactly. That's so, exactly what so, I mean. So yeah. It warps it a little bit that yeah, these kinds of exactly things happen. And it I seems mean. to happen... 2016, we had the, the, the soap the commercial, ad. yeah, and then this year we had the museum exhibit. Mm. So if we're really confined to one high-profile racist outburst per year, uh, all in all, <laughs> all that's know. actually not too bad. That seems, that seems like a pretty optimistic <laughs> kind of count, um, considering that there's so we're almost two billion people here involved. That that's what we're talking about. I think this is this is gonna be a bigger, bigger as Africa becomes more like somewhat richer and somewhat more empowered. I think not only China, China particularly because they, they you know, they, China is just very, very flat-footed about these issues and they can be incredibly, you know, clumsy about them. But I think the entire outside world has no idea of the level of hurt in Africa about these issues. Um, and, you know, and most of the time the outside world doesn't care, right? I mean, like, like Europe isn't worried about this for one single second. However, as, China, as Africa becomes a little bit more empowered, that's, this stuff is going to come up a lot because there's, there's a whole reservoir of, this, of, of resentment and anger about this stuff. Like, yeah, this is, over the next few decades, this is going to dominate world... World that that may be the case. And my final point on this before we move on is that at the same time you're saying that there will be more sensitivity in Africa to this, I, I suggest that there is a whole new generation 
of young Chinese, and I say young, they're millennials, 25 to 35, who have spent years now working in Africa as project managers on, on for state-owned enterprises, either as migrants and whatnot. They speak the languages. They are intermarrying. They are assimilating. They are people like Huang Hongxiang, who we've had on the show, who's the, the, the activist founder of China House in Kenya. Uh, there's a whole new generation of these young Chinese who are in Africa, and they will actually pave the way in many ways. And they are going to be very, very sophisticated on on assimilation, and they're going to be very sophisticated on on these racial issues, much more so than previous generations were. So I wouldn't underestimate them. I suppose. I mean, I tend to, yeah, no, I mean, there definitely are people like that. But I wonder if we have the kind of critical mass that we need, you know, of them. We have a lot of people there. There are a lot of people, and they are opening businesses. They're in communities, and, and now I'm not saying necessarily that familiarity necessarily breeds. I mean, the, the expression goes that it breeds contempt, which is also part of the may actually occur, but it also does breed assimilation, understanding, uh, cultural awareness, and and some of the sensitivities that you're looking for. So uh, I think keep an open mind on that, and we it's not necessarily a gloomy future. Not necessarily. So there we go. That is, again, one of the first times on the show that you hear us vociferously disagree <laughs> with one another. Okay. Uh, my second most important story of uh, 2017 was the November visit of General Constantino Chiwenga from Zimbabwe one week before the overthrow of the Robert Mugabe government. Uh, I thought this was a really, really important milestone in not just China-Africa relations, but in in where the direction of the world is going. Chiwenga easily could have canceled his trip to Beijing. This was a trip that was arranged in advance, so they tell us. Uh, It was not a specially arranged trip or hastily arranged just ahead of the coup, but it was... uh, Actually, coup, we can call it a coup, but it's not officially defined as a coup by... It's still not officially defined as a coup, yeah. By the African Union or the United States or the Chinese. No one is calling it a coup, but in reality, it was a coup. So Chiwenga certainly could have changed his plans, but he didn't. In the past 10, 15 years ago, Chiwenga may have gone to London. He may have gone to Washington, may have gone to Brussels, even Paris, to let officials there know. He didn't. He went to Beijing. And this was really, really significant for me. Um, This represents, in in many ways, the emergence of China as a world power. And we don't know what was actually said in Beijing. We don't know, did the Chinese consent to the change in power? Did the Chinese give their blessing? Did the Chinese give intelligence support? Nobody knows anything. So anything you hear about it is speculation. But he went. That is the one fact that we do know. And I think that is incredibly important, and it represents a sea change in, in global international or in international relations, in my view. Yes, I 100% agree. I like, and in fact, no, you know, not to not to do any log rolling, but I like Chris Alden and I co-wrote a, uh, an op-ed for the conversation, which made very much this point that saying that you know the 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 conversation about whether China pulled some kind of um, regime change trigger 
in in Zimbabwe, we felt was the wrong conversation to have. You know, there was there's no indication drawing on the history of China's conduct in Africa that they that they support this kind of like a uh, kind of that they would officially try and change a regime. You know, they they I don't think they did it in Zimbabwe, and I don't think that, you know they um, in other cases where their their investments are in a lot more danger than they were in Zimbabwe under Mugabe, they also didn't do it. So that's you know I, I to a large extent I felt that that you know, was the wrong conversation to have. And instead, we suggested that this is the actual conversation to have, that what it really reveals is that China is now a full, comprehensive world power, as Xi Jinping has been pushing it to be, and in the process that it's not only China asserting its world power status, it's now other countries reflecting it back to China. There we go. And I think this is a key point here, is that the Zimbabwe relationship for China is is meaningless in the overall scheme of things. China's international relations are far more complex and, and, and nuanced than that, than, than to depend on Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe is a, is a footnote. But it does, as you point out, it shows the reflection of it. Ian Bremmer, who is the president of the Eurasia Group, uh, he, he pointed out, he said that Xi Jinping's speech at this year's APEC summit in Vietnam in Da Nang was a turning point. That was the moment when China stepped up onto this world stage as a, a major international power. When Xi Jinping kind of announced that China will take on global responsibilities. And the reason why Ian Bremmer said it was this, and I think I agree with him on this, is that this is one of the first times that a country has emerged to global power status without a war. And and that is very, very significant. And it comes at the same time, of course, as the United States' role in the world is changing. I won't necessarily say that the United States is retreating. I have used that line in the past. It's changing. Its engagement in Africa, for example, is not necessarily declining. It's just being reallocated to military. It's being refocused on security and and terrorism, Uh, not as much on development and humanitarian issues and trade. But that said, there's still a lot of focus on Africa. It's just in a different way. Whereas China now is spreading itself into military, humanitarian issues, trade, all these different things that the United States and European powers used to do but now are doing less. And so this emergence of Xi Jinping as a major world figure, this emergence of China as a global power, the second largest economy, the deployment of blue of a blue a blue water navy, and at the same time other countries particularly in Africa reflecting that as you pointed out. So to me this is all part of a much bigger matrix that we have to look at. Final comments on that. Yeah, no, you know, you 100% agree. You know, it's you know, I would slightly differ from Ian Bremer in the sense that, you know, like that was, that for me was one of the moments. The other one was in Davos earlier this year where, where Xi Jinping also explicitly claimed globalization, you know, as a, as a Chinese phenomenon essentially you know kind of like like that claimed a position for glo- of for china in the center of globalization um as the u.s was re- retreating and the uk is retreating from multilateralism but yeah there's a, a successive you know cases of china stepping into multilateral organizations taking on a lead you know leadership position in terms of climate change for example really widening its its activities and its focus um that's yeah. right yeah. and it comes also again if we were doing the end of year review of this year in china we would also talk about tencent 
becoming the first Chinese company worth over half a trillion dollars, a $500 billion plus company. So you're seeing in so many ways, of in so many aspects of Chinese society, them emerging now to great power status. Uh, that is something that's significant. And, I, and again, I think the visit by John, General Chiwenga was symbolic on that. Okay, your number one story of the year in 2017 for China-Africa relations. My number one story is actually the... Um the launch of the railways that you that you mentioned as well you know it's um the you know, you know, like China has built several railways. They also, you know, within this one could include the the, the railway expansion in Nigeria as well. Um, and as as we discussed, it's this is just a game changer for Africa. You know, so seen from the African side of the China Africa um, relationship, I think it's really almost impossible to overstate how significant these rail lines are. Even though they're still relatively small in relation to the the networks that are planned. If those networks all to all get built um, and you have comprehensive rail networks that, that link several East African countries, the, it, that would essentially be a major step for, for Africa to overcome the 19th century, the, the damage of 19th century European colonialism. You know, the, the way that, uh, that Africa was carved up uh, into pieces that don't fit together, you know, that, that don't have any coherence across border. This is, would be a major step in, in solving that. And, and, I, and for that reason, I tended to focus on it more than I think it looks, you know, more than the significance of it on the surface. Sure, you know, kind of having rail connections between these cities are great for those, for the people living in these countries, but in, in on the, in the biggest scheme, the significance for the entire continent is, is really amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a massive step forward. It, it can't be overstated, and it's so important. And, and that's why, again, I had it on my list. I didn't have it as my number one, as my number three, but I, I see your point entirely here. One other key thing here is that we've talked a lot about soft power over the past few years, but I really think that if you look back at the news coverage – uh, of the opening of these railways, whether it was the light rail in Addis Ababa last year, the standard gauge railways in Ethiopia, Djibouti, and Kenya, and upcoming in Nigeria, the way that the press in these different countries cover it is so excited, so positive. And I think to me, this is a really an extension of the soft power narrative that China is bringing to Africa. And it's one that would never occur to people in the West who define soft power more around Jay-Z and Beyonce and movies and traditional entertainment. But the building of infrastructure, getting stuff done, that ability to deliver on a promise, something that Western aid groups have struggled with where, you know, things go through years and years of environmental impact reviews, of, you know, grant reviews, of legal reviews, and just so much bureaucracy. And I think one of the things that people do like about the Chinese involvement in Africa is the pragmatism that they bring, which is like, we're just going to get it done. And we saw that in the documentary that Philip, uh, that uh, G.D. Wong and Philip Mann did uh, a couple weeks ago in our discussion. And one of the comments from the, one of the Kenyans was, you know what, the Chinese, they get stuff done. And, and I think this is really the, the embodiment of that. And, I, and, and really, I, I agree with you. It is something very impressive. And, you know, I think also the, the reason I also put it at the top is that it isn't a simple good news story. I mean, a lot of it is great news. But the fact, the, the kind of implications, the financial implications for Africa about this, the fact that some of the deals were probably 
quite a lot more expensive than they than they could have been. Um, it also, you know, it, it raises a lot of questions about about the price Africa is paying for some of this. And you, you know, like I mean, it, it it's a kind of a can't make an omelet without breaking egg situation. You know, kind of it's such a big leap forward that in the process there's a, there's a you know it's it's not a leap that you can make very neatly necessarily, um, and it might cause a lot of problems as it solves a lot of other problems. And and I think the that kind of that kind of balance, um, you know, between what kind of problems you can handle and what which ones you need to solve immediately, that is that is key questions to ask in African development. And they got one answer in this case, and then we're going to have to see whether you know whether they could have gotten a better answer. Um, Tanzania recently made a big deal with I think a I think a Turkish investor. Where they managed to get, and which will, which will actually be part of of the of this network, this kind of integrated network that was planned around Chinese provision, the Tanzanians was you know kept themselves out of the deal making with the Chinese. They made a different, much cheaper deal with with a Turkish um, uh, you know construction company. So we're going to have to see you know whether they were made the smarter deal. And I think, but the fact that these that these questions are even on the table shows how far we've come. Okay. My number one story of 2017, the August 1, 2017 opening of the first overseas military base by the Chinese in Djibouti. Again, just like the railways, the importance of this cannot be overstated. You have to go back for 50, into 50 years of Chinese foreign policy doctrine that said they will not have foreign bases. This was a, a benchmark policy for decades. And now at first they didn't call the base in Djibouti an actual base. They call it a facility, a supply station. I mean, they bent around every which way to make sure that it's not a base. I get the sense now that they're pretty much open about it and they're saying it's a base. This was a $600 million project. It formally opened on August 1st, as I mentioned. They've had their first live fire exercises uh, just about two months later on September 22nd. And that was really fascinating because... The way not only did they have these live fire exercises, but they had the the videos and the drones to shoot it. And it was really quite dramatic. So it was hard to tell if they were making a PR video or they're actually doing military exercises. Now, the base has been misinterpreted by a lot of people as being part of this grand kind of takeover of Africa. And if you looked at the American right, the hysteria was was just... It was laughable because this is a relatively small base compared to Camp Lemonnier, which is the American base that's there, the U.S. facility, uh, and also compared to the presence of the French and some of the legacy powers in Africa. The Chinese really don't have a very big military presence in Djibouti, and I think it's very easy to overstate it. The base is a military, is a naval base really used for resupplying uh, the multinational anti-piracy operations in off the coast of Somalia and the Gulf of Aden. It is also part of the One Belt, One Road. There is no doubt that this is the first of a number of military institution institu- installations that will come in the years along Belton Road. Uh, this one is particularly important because it's at the mouth of the Suez Canal, which is going to be a very important link in, in Belton Road. Uh, but to me, that was very important. I also want to make one other point about the Djibouti base. And so this is an adjunct to my number one story of the year, and I'm going to call Wolf Warrior 2. 
Wolf Warrior 2, if you remember, is the hugely successful action movie. Box office tickets now are about $870 million worldwide, 90-some-odd percent of that, of course, in China. Wolf Warrior 2, if you don't remember, is the Chinese action film directed and starred by Wu Jing, who is now the biggest, hottest star here in China. But a billion-dollar movie is something that doesn't come along very often. Africa played a central role in the movie, but the the Chinese military, particularly the, the People's Liberation Army Navy, played a very important role in this. And you saw those big zooming shots of the warships coming off the coast, and there was even some shots at the base. And I guess it's all tied together that they're launching this base, the propaganda, the the narrative within the society is changing, that they have this ability to project power. So on the one hand, there's the real military power, and then the other part of it is the media narrative that Chinese culture is starting to rally behind in much the same way that Americans have for decades as well. So the military base or the Navy base and Wolf Warrior Two are my number one stories of 2017. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you that they're, that they're incredibly important. The reason I, I didn't end up putting them on my top three is because this time I decided to make my top three very focused on the African side of the China-Africa relationship, you know, particularly like from, you know, you being in China, I, I decided it's probably a good idea for me to take an, a very African view. And I think from the African side, this is certainly massive news. I mean, you know, the, it, it certainly indicates a, a very, very significant kind of widening of the Chinese role um, in Africa and, you know, uh, uh, certainly like China taking, again, stepping into a global superpower role in, in a way that that is really eye-popping. Um, but at the same time, it, you know, from an African perspective, I think it also is a kind of a, it's a, in a way, almost a kind of a lower key or almost muted story of the, which is part of a wider story of the increasing militarization of foreign presence in Africa. Um, so in a way, it, it, it dovetails well with what you mentioned about the U.S. Um, presence being increasingly militarized. Um, and so it, it, you know, it, it is a story for the ages. It's, it's you know, really, really kind of epoch-making story, like, um, you know, news event. But from the African perspective, I, I felt that, you know, in a way, it, it is more, a, 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 you know, an adding to rather than a, a completely new chapter. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I think that's, it does give an interesting contrast in how we're approaching it, because this year, in 2017, I moved to China, I moved back here. I've lived here for a long time in a previous in a previous era, but now I'm back here. Uh, and uh, so I'm taking, I think, a, a more Chinese view of things. And the fact that you're taking a more African view uh, is interesting and I think makes our discussions that much more lively. Let's now look ahead to 2018. Uh, one story and one trend that you think is going to be the thing that we should all keep our eyes on in the year ahead. What What is it? It, this was quite under the radar, but um, the, this com- there's a Chinese company called Transian um, that outstripped Samsung uh, in being selling phones in Africa this, this year. They sold, in the first half of the year, they sold 50 million smartphones in Africa. Um, it is now the largest, it's a, it's a quite unknown company, it is now the largest smartphone provider in the entire Africa, and they're, they're just like pushing cell phones into Africa at an incredible level. Um, so one of the things that, that I found very interesting is that Transient isn't a particularly kind of large 
large company in China. In fact, that they actually they actually bypassed the Chinese market and focused on the global South market. Particularly in Africa, they're slowly making inroads in India as well. Um, and so they showed that you can make money by selling stuff to Africans. Um, and one of the really interesting things is, is was some of the ways that they changed their technological, the specs of their phones to for the African market. So they made it in the first place, most of the phones that they're selling take more than one SIM card. Um, and, you know, which because Africans frequently have more than one SIM card because the networks are so are so gappy. So, you know, like, especially not so much in South Africa, but in, in places like Nigeria, people would, they need phones with more than one SIM card slot because they're moving from network coverage to network coverage, you know, as they move in the city. Um, they also... Like they, it's like I kind of have to laugh. One of the ways that they made a lot of money in Africa is be, is by increasing the bass in their speakers. Um, so the music is just a, the, when you play music loud and also over headphones, they they they, they boosted the bass uh, feedback, and then also they they changed the cameras to make it to, to make dark skin tones, you know, so that you don't lose the definition and with with taking pictures of people with dark skin tones. So all those little tweaks means that they made a ton of money, and I think it 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 shows it gives a little template of how. You, businesses and particularly Chinese businesses can, you know, will, will start making money in Africa. Just to pick up on the tech side of what you're saying, I think one other key important trend, not necessarily one I am going to be defining as my most important for 2018, but one that will definitely come up is the emergence of China's e-commerce and internet companies that finally make it to Africa. So Jack Ma this year came to uh, Nairobi and Rwanda. Of course, he's the founder and multi-multi-billionaire uh, owner of Alibaba and uh, Tencent, which is partially owned by Nashburs in South Africa, is talking about bringing WeChat into more African markets. And WeChat may or may not actually be present in a lot of African markets, but the back end of WeChat, some of the, the OS of it may start to show up in banking apps and may start to show up in some of the e-commerce transactions that people don't actually know about, but they're using a lot of Tencent data and using Tencent technology. So Chinese bike sharing is starting to come to Africa. So some of the e-commerce models that have worked so well here and that are very well customized for emerging markets and developing markets, uh, expect to see some of those start to show up in Africa as well. My theme in the most important story for 2018 is going to be, is this the year that China loses interest in Africa? Now that is kind of a shock maybe, but there are a lot of indicators to show that China's interest in Africa is really starting to wane in a very significant way. Um, there was a report earlier this year that immigration peaked in 2013, Chinese immigration into Africa. And since 2013, Barry Soutman, who's a professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and probably one of the best-known scholars on Chinese migration in Africa, uh, he, he's talked about how there has been a net emigration of Chinese migrants out of Africa uh, for the past three or four years. So that's one indicator. Trade is down significantly from 2015. So first half trade, which is the only numbers that we have for 2017, came in at $85 billion. So if we stretch that out, 
to the second half and just assume that it's somewhere around that we're going to be under $200 billion, which is down significantly from the $220 billion that we saw in 2015. Uh, 2016, the number went down. So they're talking about increases over 2016, but that's off of a low base. So it'll be interesting to see our trade volumes down between China and Africa. And finally, investment. Sinopec, one of the largest oil companies in the world, says, you know what? We're getting tired of Nigeria and Gabon. An oil company getting tired of Nigeria, to me, is just remarkable. But will we see more Chinese companies and major oil firms and resource extraction companies go, you know what? We've got a lot more commitments that we have to take care of on Belt and Road. We can invest in more parts of the world now that we couldn't do 10, 15 years ago. And honestly, we don't really want to deal with the corruption, the risk, the lack of governance, the poor infrastructure, all of the problems that Africa has. So let's go somewhere else. And so all those people who worried about China colonizing Africa, taking over Africa, conquering it, becoming the new imperial overlords of Africa, I think the bigger concern might be what happens if China actually packs up and leaves in a very significant way. I've seen a lot of this, you know, a lot of these indicators, of course, and um, it's it's something that I keep wondering about whether what we're seeing is a loss of interest or a shift of interest. Um, you know, whether whether there is a what we're seeing is, for example, the Sinopec story. Are we seeing a loss of interest in African oil, or are we seeing a correction for overinvestment during boom times when the oil price was? was particularly high. You know, so, so are we seeing a retreat or are we seeing a correction? That, that's, that's what it's I'm It's subject about. to interpretation. Uh, it's hard for us to tell. Again, Sinopec is an extension of the Chinese government, is not a very transparent organization, so we will probably never know. I got flagged on LinkedIn by some of my followers who said that this is they're not linked. This is just a, a readjustment of Sinopec's business. Um, I will contend that if we have a lot of different dots, there might be a way to link them together. But as you point out rightly, maybe these just are dots. And the other thing to think about is that Chinese interest in Africa is changing. It's not necessarily declining. If we just measured in pure economic and investment terms, sure, maybe it is just declining. But we're seeing an increase in commitment to humanitarian issues. Obviously, the PLA and the military is more interested in Africa than they were before uh, culturally. There's more Chinese uh, sponsorship of African students to go to, to study in Beijing and Shanghai and all the, the major cities in, in China. So it's maybe shifting as well and moving to a more uh, mature phase of the relationship rather than simply China throwing out cash. Speaking of which, if I'm correct, 2018 is another summit year. Is that correct for FOCAC? Yes. So this yes. actually, there's a whole bunch of summits that's coming here. It's going to be very so. Busy. It's going to be very interesting. So FOCAC is the Forum on China Africa Cooperation, and if previous FOCACs tell us anything, what usually happens is that China whips out a huge check and says, "We're going to give you sixty billion dollars." Before that, it was what you know. They just keep ramping up and amping up the money that they're going to give. Is that going to be the same this year? Are they going to give $80 billion, $90 billion? Or will it be, you know what? We're not going to give you as much money, but we're going to do other things. We just want to be friends. 
Um, yes, so it's, it's gonna, that that's going to be that might be an indicator. Fokak 2018, yes, Fokak 2018 is going to be a, a, a real kind of litmus test of where the where the relationship Correct. is going. That'll be a weather vane um, for us because I don't think China can can keep just necessarily. I mean, China has a lot of money, but you know, it it it. It becomes, you know, just ratcheting it up by 30 billion every every three years. You know, that doesn't necessarily work. Um, it's not necessarily sustainable. And it's really um, unhealthy. So, I mean, yeah. it is really unhealthy. Mm. It, it once again creates this this donor-dependent relationship. And it is, to me, if that is where they keep going, I will be very, very disappointed in some ways because you just then see one African leader, you know, standing with hat in hand and saying, how much are you going to give me? One after another like that. And so I hope it's not going to be simply just the, more money. The other, the other option would be, you know, for radically changing trade regimes, for example. You know, it, it would be interesting, like, if they don't do it, what they follow it up with in, in other gestures. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what yeah. we would like to see more of, and this is what... Analysts like Nsetse Were, who we've interviewed twice this year, we would like to see more market opening in China for African agricultural products, making it easier to export tea, export rice. And, and already China's market is relatively open, especially compared to the U.S. and Europe for agricultural products. But to do more to develop African exports into China. So making it easier for South African uh, fruit exporters to bring their products into China as well. This is a huge market. And if there is a way to further establish this as a major destination to increase the trade and to really start to bring some attention to the trade imbalances that exist between African countries and China, which are unsustainable in the long run. And that's another kind of touch point. So before we get down the line too far, uh, we don't want to get away from our, our top three stories and our one story of the, of the year in 2018. We want to all, you know, close our show, as we do every year, with a very generous thank you to all of you who have been listening. Our audience continues to grow every year, and we are just so eternally grateful. You, you have no idea. This is a passion project for Cobus and I. We both have day jobs, and uh, we do this because we love it, and we do it now in part, in major part, because we get such great feedback from all of you. Uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, even the criticisms are are really thoughtful, and and I appreciate all of that. And so this is such an important part of our lives. Cobus and I have been doing this together now for eight years, so next year will be our eighth year, and uh, we're just super grateful. And in this holiday season, when we're all supposed to give thanks to things and to to show our appreciation, I think I you know for me, I just want to say thank you to everybody for participating and for following and for engaging with us. And the lovely feedback that you give, the questions, sometimes you challenge us. A lot of times I get corrected, and I really, really appreciate that too. It helps keep me honest, and uh, no one's perfect. And so when you guys correct me, it is always something that I welcome. And I, you'll see that I post. Sometimes I say, my bad, totally got that one wrong. And I really appreciate everybody kind of helping keep me honest as we go forward into a new year as well. 100%. It was, you know, it's it's such an amazing community and we so appreciate all of your support and, you know, feedback and listening and comments. And yeah, it's it, it's it's very humbling and we really, really appreciate it. 
So we're going to take a couple weeks off for the holidays, and then we're coming back in 2018 with an exciting new partnership that I'll unveil here today for the first time with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University and the School of Journalism there. So starting next year, we're going to have integration and partnership with them on the podcast, as well as in our weekly email newsletter and in also some of their seminars and some of their trainings. We're going to be bringing on journalists from across Africa and hopefully from China that engage with the Africa-China Reporting Project at WITS. Uh, You'll hear a new format in the podcast with a little bit of credits that are given to them. And we're hoping at the same time to really introduce you to their community and uh, so that it can open up into a whole new world of how journalism is being created to tell the China-Africa story. So that's something we're really looking forward to in 2018. So we'll see you in next year with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.